Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 165, May of 2023. Our guest this month is Midge Guerrero. Midge is a playwright whose work spans almost 50 years. I met her almost 20 years ago, and we were both pursuing our MFAs in creative writing at Goddard College. Her writing has always been energetic, heartfelt, and rings close to home. The dedication page of her travel book, which we will talk about in a few minutes, is Read Often, Read Well, Read Furiously. you got a play coming out with uh, Next Stage Press, correct? I do. Uh, he just showed me the cover, so I'm thinking that it comes out next month, maybe. It's called Mamma Mia La Bafana. Okay. And it's a riff on the Italian holiday Christmas epiphany tale of La Bafana. What kind of okay. comedy, drama? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think I think that all the stuff that I do is kind of dramedy. Uh, I really enjoy comedy. I think I do comedy well. But I also think that sometimes we need to be smacked in the head a little bit with themes that are important to all. And Mamma Mia La Bafana... Uh, takes place in Montpelier, Vermont, a place that George, you and I have both visited I when we went to Goddard. Montpelier so <laughs> much, yes. It is but it was it was per- <laughs> it was a perfect place to set this. It's about a grandmother who is full of vim and vigor. She's in her sixties. She skis. She lives in Florida, and at Christmas time, she comes normally doesn't come to visit her granddaughter, Mary, and her daughter, Maria. But this particular holiday season, she does. And what we discover along the way is that this grandmother is ageless. She's really the thousands of years old La Bafana, who every holiday season searches out every Italian kid in the world during Epiphany, and if they've been good, leaves them a present or some candy. If they've been bad, some carbone, a bit of a bit of coal to uh, remind them to be better <laughs> next <bodies>. year. Yes. <laughs> but okay. this year, <laughs> this year, uh, and I don't want to reveal too much of the plot. I think it's I think it's it's captivating and it's engaging. Dad is a doctor and every holiday season he volunteers with doctors without borders and Mary, our, our protagonist, our, our 10 year old star knows that daddy won't be home for Christmas, but new year's and epiphany is always their holiday. Well, this year, because of the increased fighting um, in Africa, they are not able to come out and get out. And then they discover they're actually trapped in, in this particular part of Southern Africa. And, and Mary's besides herself. So she decides she's going to figure out a way to get her dad home. And her mom has called politicians and said, can America airlift these guys? And the response is, oh, but Doctors Without Borders is a French agency. You know, and so not, not getting anywhere politically, Mary decides that if she rides her brand new Christmas bike, in the snowstorm, in, up and down the hills of Montpelier, Vermont, she will go and just sit in front of the senator's office and some state trooper will probably arrest her and then she'll get tons of press and then they'll be able to get her father home. She's a, she's a very gifted and precocious uh, 10-year-old. Yeah. 
I love well, this child. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. I know she she could be yours. In in the in the moment of doing this, however, even though she's well prepared and she's printed out from Google Earth a map and she has a cell phone, she makes the mistake of texting while riding her bike. Ah, Bad thing. Ah. Bike crashes, bike falls off, she's oh. hurt, she can barely walk, but she makes it, and remember, this is Epiphany, yeah. to the manger in front of their Catholic church, where she's smart enough to bury herself in the straw. Um, meanwhile, everybody is panicking at home. Does Mary, does anybody find Mary? Her best friends, who have names that are very reminiscent to the three kings. Sure. And who were just in the Christmas pageant with her playing the three kings uh, are helping, as are all the adults in the community. But we know who is, I'm going to cry, who is ultimately going to find her. The same spirit of epiphany that finds every little Italian child. La Bafana. La Bafana. Yeah. Okay. So this 10 year old child is the protagonist of the play correct yes yes do you, do you have her played by an actual age-specific actor or do you have her played by an older actor pretending to be someone so young because i'm wondering you know, if this is such a big role it's a huge role and i've seen kids and i've worked with a lot of kids do wonderful things and i when i created this uh, piece, I thought that it would be great, not only for youth groups of Catholic churches, because it's very Catholic centered, mm -hmm. um, but also for for theaters that work with children and produce family centered plays. It it the cast can be augmented. There are essentially the three uh, the three kings are two boys and a girl. And Mary is a girl. And then there's La Bafana and the mother, uh, two women. And then there are just one guy playing the dad. He can also be the state trooper. So it can be a small cast or a community theater could embellish it by adding a children's choir, mm. you know, all, all the accoutrement for uh, a Christmas kind of a pageanty play. But at the same time, we're dealing with I hate to say that it's how many of my plays are anti-war plays, but you know, an anti-war piece. Uh, how do we deal with politics piece? So it's got a message besides this wonderful, uplifting story based on an Italian folktale. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm with you on the anti-war stories. I, it's um, as far as I'm concerned, we should have more because the public needs to hear, see, and understand the point of view of not sending our relatives, friends, family members out to solve the problems that politicians create along the way. Yeah. Let's send the politicians out there to do that. Uh, Things would change so much. When I was researching this and particularly Doctors Without Borders and kinds of places they were, have been in Rwanda and all of that. And I realized that this stuff's been going on for years and years and years, yeah. certainly throughout all of my adult life. And, and they never stop no. and we do nothing to stop it. It's all about the dollar, I think, it is or the yen or the, the Euro or the pound. It's whatever buys the guys in the oligarchy, their next small country. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's Mama Mia La Bafana, and it's looking for a home. If anybody wants to produce it, <laughs> Next Stage Press will have it out for you. Okay, we're both we're both published by Next Stage Press, and I want to send a shout out to one of my favorite people in the world, Gene Cato, who runs it. Yes. Um, he does an absolutely he's, he's amazing, amazing. Job. He's yeah. incredible. Yes. He, he is. Yeah. I mean, I, I have been calling myself uh, the Grandma Moses of Playwrights. And Gene was the first person to publish me. Well, I take that back. I've had stuff published earlier in journals and stuff. Sure. Um, but the first play that I've ever had really published was by Gene. And he's just been so supportive. Down to what color do you want the cover to be? I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's uh, there are certain things you should and should not ask your your publisher because they have all the stuff and they follow yeah, yeah. all their programs. But I was able to send a cover graphic for my play Fault <clears> Lines. <throat> I got to pick the color cover, you know, cover color. Um, oh, George, no. because I saw that you had a cover graphic, I started sending cover graphics too. Ah. <laughs> I think I think a few more people have started started doing that. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure if Gene is cursing me at this moment, <clears throat> but, <laughs> um, but this is this is not the first play you've had published, is it? Um, you've had no, no. If I if I do my let's see the plays, uh, many snows ago, right. which is based on the tale of New Jersey's and the Eastern Seaboard's indigenous people, the Lenape, which are really a branch of the Iroquois uh, nation. I toured with this a hundred years ago when I was sprightly and could lift things in and out of a truck. Uh, so it was done in lots of schools and it's short folk tales of the Lenape mm -hmm. uh, presented in a story theater fashion. So it too is great for schools and every school on the Eastern seaboard studies the indigenous people of their lands. And again, this is another piece that's, it actually could be part of any curriculum of the third and fourth grade in any school from uh, Delaware, you know, up to Vermont. Yeah, it's it's just fun. And Next Stage Press did indeed publish that. Um, Youth Plays, another great company, published my The Eagle and the Woman, which is based on a Nashanti tale from Ghana, and it's about sometimes love blinds us. And we allow things to happen. It's it, it's a really moralistic that we know shouldn't because of that love. Yeah. Um, well, next love, day, love makes us do the most insane things. Insane stuff. In this case, the old woman. I mean, it's really a, a powerful tale of love between a grandmother and a granddaughter. Yeah. The there's this crippled old woman who's searching for food for her granddaughter on the plains of Ghana and and the grand eagle the great eagle sees her and sees that she's so crippled and she's looking for something and he he she offers and I say he she cuz I'm not quite sure who the eagle is um offers to help and all the other animals are saying yeah you don't really want to help these people because yeah they don't really help animals you know they kill the elephants for their tusks they do all these horrible things. But the eagle goes, I'm going to ask her to do a deal. I've got eggs that need to be in a nest. I will create for her a village if she will promise me that the village will guard the nest. Well, of course, the woman does. And the only person who doesn't appear in the village, and the eagle had said, 
think of everyone you love and who loves you, and they will appear in this village. And her granddaughter doesn't. The granddaughter appears in the midst of a great thunderstorm and lightning. And when the people in the village see her, they all groan because she's the most obnoxious little shit you'd ever want in the world. So selfish. And of course, the first thing she wants to do is eat a baby eagle. Mm. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends because okay. it's sad. It's sad. We don't want people to cry when they listen. No, um, but it does It does deal with, because the, the grandmother obviously loses everything. She loses the village. She loses her friends because she allowed her love to overwhelm her ability to commit to this promise yeah. and human essentially bite the hand yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the so that's published by youth plays and they're in california they're oh yeah oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. actually uh, i, I, I want to get to another I, can one i tell you go for it Go ahead. I was going to tell you a secret. I have my resume up on my iPad because I can't remember <laughs> the names of my plays. But don't tell anybody. Uh, it's a big secret. I, I, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> okay. I was, I, I was going to try and segue to one of your other plays, which I really wanted to talk about. Email 912. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, talk about anti-war stuff and talk about, um, Yeah. Tell, tell, tell us the story of how this came around, will you? Oh, wow. Well, email 912. Uh, wow. Um, email 912. I was teaching at Rutgers in Newark, New Jersey. And I would take the train from Asbury Park. We lived in Asbury Park at that point in time. And I'm on the train. And on the morning of 9-11... Yeah. everybody it's people on the right side of the train which would have been the the hudson river side are staring out the window and saying look at the smoke and suddenly everybody's looking out the window and we realize that the smoke is coming from one of the twin towers well no one knows why this smoke is coming and people are like texting and and trying to get some information um and then somebody said oh a plane hit the tower well the majority of people on the on the train assumed that it was like a little Piper Cub or you know some little two seater guy. Sure, who yeah, yeah. It up, um, and so then I got we got well got off the train in, in Newark, and some people continued into Manhattan, and I get to Rutgers, and everybody's staring at computers, and some people went up to the roof, and as we're looking out the windows, we see this motherfucking giant plane second plane crash into mm -hmm. the, the tower and the tower start to collapse uh, and it was a moment that i will always remember i mean just like i How always remember oh yeah God. yeah where i was when uh john kennedy was shot i mean you know it's those things you just right. remember and probably where our, what our parents remembered the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed. I mean, it's sure, yeah. they're embedded. They're just embedded. Well, I took, they closed the school and 
a lot of what I'm I'm sharing with you is also in the play because it's very uh, it's based on me and it's right. based on my friends. The character's name is Margaret. I mean, that's me. Um, the uh, they closed the school, but I needed a new parking decal, and I thought, oh well, the school's closed except for the administrative offices. And they're telling everyone to leave. I'll just run over to this admin office and get my parking decal and then head for a train. And when I go to the office, the woman behind the counter who was African-American looked at me and she said, my husband is a is a Newark police officer. There are no policemen in Newark. Everyone has gone to New York. You have to leave. Wow. And I immediately realized she was saying, listen, white lady, you have <laughs> to leave. Yeah. And that was really culturally, uh, I mean, you know me, George. I mean, I, I, I would never think in those terms, but I realized that's Black what she was actually saying. don't think in those terms right off the bat. We have to be told a lot of the perspectives yeah. that are obvious to pers- everyone else. Yeah. Oh, Wow. I got to the train station and it was chaos. You couldn't get a train out. I mean, yeah. and they, you could people that were stuck in the path. I mean, it was awful. So they just loaded everybody on a train to get them out of Newark. And frankly, I'm not quite sure where I ended up because I don't remember. Uh, it was just an awful day. And somehow then I made it on another train um, back. And in those days we were living on a farm in Flagtown, New Jersey. And, and my husband was working at a nuclear plant uh oh god which one he's worked at so many the one that's in in new york that uh one of the kennedy kids decided they had to shut down uh, what, did, what did you actually put on the paper and start writing this writing this oh i'm not on? yeah i'm gonna tell you okay and now i get home i can't reach my husband he can't reach me um and I found out later people were hysterical because they thought i would be the kind of person that would have gone over to new york to help uh, and because uh, I couldn't get home right away. And the minute I got home, this is when I put pen to paper. Wow. I sent an email to like everybody I knew that I really cared about saying, this is what my day was like. And it was horrible. And I want to know a, that you're okay. And B what your day was like. And I didn't think at that point, this is going to be a play. I just knew that I had to reach out to everybody I knew and loved. Yeah. And then like in the middle of the night, uh, I'm hearing the bing, bing, bing. And I, I don't remember. I mean, that's with dialogue, you know, uh, there was no Fios at that point in time in 2001, the emails started coming back. And when I read them, I thought this is a play and these have to be shared. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I changed names and I changed places and, Oh, sure, and, of course, yeah. and embellished and all of that. But it's really the play is really based on the responses that I got to the events of that day. And 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 after when I realized that I was going to do this as a play, I started interviewing people. I interviewed police officers and firemen and um, just to add another perspective of reality. And and they are real stories. They are real stories. Yeah. So and and I was really fortunate that uh, first I did it as a one woman play, you know, this woman, me writing these emails and then reading the responses. And we had it done by the Black Box Theater of Asbury Park. 
uh, when George Hansel was the artistic director. Um, and then I realized, oh, it can't be a one woman play. We we have to have these voices heard. And so it got redone. And and for the I was really fortunate for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. It was done in uh, Philadelphia and New York in um, a couple of places in New Jersey, someplace in Arizona. Yeah. Um, and I think I think. Of all the stuff I've written, it deserves to be done more because from a historic perspective, it tells the story because based on real people. And it, it's a lesson for those people that weren't even born then to see what happened and, and the impact it had on people's emotions and, and lives. Yeah, in a sense, the, the, the younger persons of today have an advantage that we did not. We heard the tales of World War II and we heard the tales of, you know, the Kennedy shooting and we heard the details of the Red Scare, you know, all these spoken word stories handed down as it had been done for the past 10,000 years because that's how history was transmitted. You heard from your elders. Kids today now get to see the pictures. They get to see... 9,000 YouTube videos of 9-11. Right. They, hear, they get to see and hear and have more access to information than we ever did. And that's somebody else's, you know, PhD thesis <laughs> right there. But to transmit that into an age-old art form such as playwriting. Mm is, I mean, it's been done millions of times before, but it's mm. still testimony to what humans go through at the worst possible times. At the worst possible time. And I mean, not only from a historic perspective, um, but based just what you said, it, it's, it reveals the resilience of people. It also reveals the connection and we all know it now because of the pandemic yeah. the connection you can still have through cyberspace um in, in a very positive way and actually that was the first thing that next age press published was that and then they published my children's plays uh gene did yeah. but it, that was the first one which is where i want to go next um and i was mm -hmm. going to say you know it's internet which is what we're doing right now you know, it's it's this would not have been possible 15 years I know. Ago. You're so far away from me across an ocean and a land. Yes. I know, but it feels like we're we're in the same cafe, you know, ordering yeah, yeah. cappuccino after cappuccino here and just watching life go by. Um yeah, because I was either gonna go with uh folk tales or children's plays, and I think since we're already there. Let's talk about your kids' plays. When did you start writing them? And <laughs> what, what made you start writing for, for you know, kids? I am, if I had, when I went to, to uh, undergraduate school, when I got my my BA in, in theater uh, at Montclair State, it was a college then, now it's a, a different named university. Um, I had a professor who said, you can be a star 
and love that and maybe seldom work, but when you work, you're the star. Or you can be a working actor and actually earn money doing this as long as you're willing to put that work in. And I always thought, I'm an actor and I'm going to get paid. So uh, my first writing experience for a public, besides when I was seven years old, charging, I think it was a nickel or a dime to come into the woods. I I just want to throw in for the general public here that making money in theater and playwriting is (laughs) good luck. It doesn't happen a lot. But but it it doesn't happen a lot unless you're entrepreneurial. Maybe that's it. But when I was seven, my sister, I was pretty entrepreneurial. And I wrote this play uh, and we called it Zodiac Village. It took place in the woods between my house and the Hansons. And I wrote a play about all the mysterious and macabre things that could happen to you uh, and scare the heck out of you. Uh, in Zodiac Village. So there'd be lots of screams and the neighborhood kids paid. Um, (laughs) But when I really really wrote something for money, I was probably a sophomore in college and I got a job with the Recreation Commission uh, doing theater with kids and they wouldn't pay for a for the royalties, which really offends me when schools don't pay the royalties Sorry, Mr. Principal, you get a salary. Playwrights mm-hmm. need the royalties. Uh, and essentially, it's thievery. Yeah. yeah. So I decided I wasn't going to steal, which is what they had done. I was going to write a play. So I wrote a children's play. Uh, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. <laughs> I mean, it was 110 years ago. Um, Detective Dog. That was the name of it. Detective Dog Solving Crimes. Um And then when I graduated from college, I uh, had a theater on 73rd Street in New York called Originals One with people that I had met doing summer stock. And I was just a producer there. Um, And I realized that that was my first advanced degree was learning how to produce theater in New York. And simultaneously, because we weren't making enough money, I got a job as a teacher. Um, And while I was teaching at Hillsborough High School, I started writing uh, reviews that the kids could do. And then out of that, I met um, a woman who became my partner in this, TJ Muskulski. She was a speech therapist who had a really strong background in theater too, had been a performer, an equity performer as a kid. And we started a children's theater company called Laughingstock Company, L-A-F-F-I-N, Stock Company. And our logo was a big set of teeth with red lips. And I wrote, we were very successful and we were paying the actors more than equity scale for a TYA contract was at that point in time, because it was like 1971. Sure, and yeah. we, we were paying $25 a performance. And some days we did four shows. And I also sold it. I sold it to uh, I sold it to the summer to recreation commissions. And then we added the holiday season and we started selling. So we'd have two seasons, summer and holiday season, because holiday season teachers have off right. for a couple of weeks. And the summers we had off. So I was making money from my children's plays. And I don't know. And that was years ago. 
And we actually closed the company because we were too successful, but neither of us, she wait, was wait. married. You closed because you were too successful? I I've know, never heard no anybody in theater even come close even to that. Close that. Because my partner's husband said, you can't quit your teaching job. This isn't going to make enough money. So I would have been doing it by myself. And I thought, well... I don't know what I was. I wasn't even 30 yet. You know, maybe he knows. I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to close. I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing this. And I ultimately left teaching anyway. And I started working in radio. Uh, but I saw, so, but I had all of these plays in a drawer and they were typed on a typewriter and there was a real problem because I was also in most of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, I broke my leg in one. I was hired. We were what? hired. We, we would get hired by all kinds of people. We were hired by a bank uh, who was doing fundraising for the heart fund uh, and they wanted a hearts related play. So I wrote a play called hearts for the heartless and I was the mean queen who stole the hearts and i flew in and the line snapped about three minutes before the show oh. boom. Ouch. boom and there were you know an audience outside ouch um but the worst the worst problem with me being in the shows besides that was because i was the author and the producer and the director <laughs> i didn't really spend a lot of time memorizing Ah, yeah. And so the, I was improvising often, and the actors would be like, "What? The loved heck? you? <laughs> where is that coming from?" Yeah, and I figured it didn't yeah. matter, man. I'm not Shakespeare. I'm not Shakespeare. It's okay. You can change the words. Uh, but because of that, now that I'm in my third act, and I don't want to call it my final act, maybe I'll have a fourth act. In my third act, I have gotten these out of the drawer and have been rewriting them and and because they had so many shows <laughs> so many changes with me improvising i think that the scripts are uh, are really solid i mean the girl who cried witch is a halloween play that helps us learn that special feeling of uh, being happy doesn't doesn't mean you have to change who you are uh, it was published by Next Stage Press, and I've got a bunch of others in the drawer that I'm I'm working on, and because they had so many performances and they can be documented, I'm going to be sending them out and yes. seeing yeah. if we can get them get them published. But I have drawers full. Anybody want one? You can find me at MitchCarrera.com. There you go. Now they're lining up as we speak. <laughs> okay. Somebody told me this, and I can't remember who, because I researched it. And I, you need to explicate this one. Created two performing arts high schools? I mean, where does that come from? I, I mean, a whole high school? Who creates a high school? Well, you know, somebody who who doesn't know that they can't. Oh, um, that person. Okay. That person. I, um, people have said that what I am really is a program builder. Okay. I, I had, I will tell you the high school thing. I had been working for WBRW, a small market radio station. And at the same time was still friends with the artist teachers at the high school that I had been teaching out, including one Mickey Mathesius, who was a, uh, history teacher, but also ran the dance department. 
And we talked about Somerset County in New Jersey didn't have a designated arts agency. So we decided we would start one. And, you know, we didn't know how. We just did it. We started an arts agency that it's had always so much better when you have no clue how to do them. We have no clue. And we got funders and we got a board of power. We knew things that we knew, didn't read the book. You need powerful people on your board. Okay, did that. Mm -hmm. You need a great space. Okay, found one really cheap, got st former students to help with the redesign and the rebuild, did that. Um, and we just kept moving forward until we were this really wonderful, it was called the New Jersey Center for the Performing Arts. And during that, the vocational school asked if, I also ran the Somerset County Teen Arts Program um, during that period. And Somerset County Vocational School asked if I could come in and help them with some sort of a gifted artsy program or something. So I was looking at their school and the vocational schools were having diminished enrollment because parents at this point in time were so into getting their kids into college, they yeah. didn't want to hear that you can make a million bucks as a plumber and go to vocational school. Um, and I said, well, you ought to have a dance studio and a theater program. Yeah. And I wrote, and then at the same time, my partner, Mickey Mathesius, was going to graduate school. So she was writing this up for her um, master's in administration. And then... I wrote the empowering legislation for the state of New Jersey that Somerset County Votech forwarded to the state of New Jersey. And the next thing you knew, we had a performing arts high school within the vocational school in Somerset County with uh, musical theater, theater and dance. It ultimately, now it also has musical theater, gets lots of kids, et cetera. And yeah. then I realized I couldn't stay in Somerset County much longer. I needed... I needed to do something else. Oh, I broke up with this guy. I wanted to get the fuck out of town. Um, so I, uh, Red Bank Regional was a vocational school district in Monmouth County. And now they wanted to follow this model. And they hired me to create within their plant, within their high school, the performing arts program. Uh, which this one had music and dance and theater. And then I got hired by the state of New Jersey because the state of New Jersey had empowering legislation from the 70s to have a residential performing arts high school. You will notice if you research New Jersey, there still isn't one. I lasted two years in that job. I figured out how to do it. There was a school for the deaf that had hardly any kids in it. I talked to that board and those administrators. I said, can we use this for a performing arts residential? And then we would, of course, give priority to deaf students and work with them. They were excited. I figured out how to fundraise it. I figured it all out. I went to sit. I, I then sat down with the commissioner of education who explained that they didn't really want one, that essentially it was there to appease the arts lobby. And I, my father was a politician and he knew lots of political friends. And that very same day, I secretly got press kits out to all, all the major dailies that covered New Jersey. Nice. And held a press conference and I resigned because I was being paid a lot of money and I had a big staff. And I said, <laughs> feed the hungry. Oh my. Because God. you don't want this. And when I was hired, 
in the interview with an assistant, a deputy commissioner of education, I said, do not hire me unless you really want this because I will build it. I build things. I will build it. But they didn't really want it. So I left and then I became poor, but it was okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as as somebody who co-ran a fringe festival in Ithaca, New York for four years, and two years of trying to get it going before that, between boards and, and fundraising and yeah, yeah. endless facta details. You know, to hear you talk about starting a high school and a, and a performing arts center and making it sound so easy, I'm not sure if I'm in awe or I, or something else. I don't know, but some people- I don't know, are, maybe it's it's selective recall. Yeah, <laughs> I be. scrubbed the floors. <laughs> You know, I painted the walls. Yeah. Um, well, that's, but, what, that's what most people but somehow, who theater do, you know, or then they get into theater and it's nice. It. We, we all have this wonderful idea of <laughs> we're going to have a corporate structure and there are going to be people here. We're going to take care of all these little, you know, segregated jobs and everything will run like clockwork. But the thing is, nobody put the batteries in the clock. The clock doesn't work. It's on the wrong time. It's only got one hand. And one person is pretty much running the whole thing. Well, what I discovered is that I liked to hire people who were smarter than I was and really good at what they did and let them do it. Yeah, that's a good one. And with the arts, you know, and with the art center there at that point in time, this was the 70s, I guess, there was a lot of uh, Comprehensive Education Training Act money. It was called CETA, CETA money. So I, I, and if you hired ex-cons, and in those days, if you smoke pot, you were an ex-con, right? right. Uh, so yeah. I hired ex-cons. One, one was a star gymnast, and it create I created outsourcing programs in the prisons with this guy going in and doing gymnastics and movement and dance. You know, I hired a woman who was an ex-con because she was an alcoholic to be an administrator. She was fabulous. It was all with that kind of money. Or maybe she yeah. was under disability money. I don't know, but I I was I was able to work. I grew up in a political family, George. My dad was the mayor. He was very active in county and state politics. When I was 22, I was in the Carter White House at political briefings uh, because my father didn't want to go. When he put me on the train, he gave me a big notebook and said, eh, go to this meeting. <laughs> I said, okay. Um, yeah, okay, great. Yeah. You know, so sure. I think because I have that um, background and grew yeah. up with it, um, I, I, I always figured if if there was a wall, there's always a way above it or under it mm-hmm. or, or around it. You know, just don't somewhere. don't yeah. sit. And don't so win. many people are not taught that that is possible. Most people are taught to follow the rules. These are the rules. You follow them. And it's hard because without realizing that you have permission to be creative, to be a free thinker, to be a critical thinker, you end up not going as far as you might possibly have gone. And it's such a crime to keep our next generations from realizing there are good rules, there are bad rules, there are ways to- And I'm not even saying that if the rule is good or the rule is bad, it's a rule. And I never break a rule, but I read the rule so thoroughly that I know exactly what the scope is. 
Well, you and find ways you, to work with. And you work adapt. within it, yes. and yeah. which people don't think about because they don't read the whole rule. They just go, oh, you can't do this. Okay, you can only you can't do it between five a.m. and seven p.m. Why don't we do it at four? You know, um, sure. They have, they just have to have that knowledge. Yeah. So that's that story, and I don't know what else I should talk. Oh, I should talk about oh. new projects. Well, I was I was actually going to segue to your life in Italy and cows, castles, cow, cars, <gasps> castles, cows, and cows. Oh my god, my because oh. yeah. You know, it's. I read this book. I love this book. Um, it's so much fun. And the fact that you write it with your own voice is, I mean, we knew each other from, what, three, four week-long sessions up at Goddard. And, you know, your voice has always stayed with me. Your attitude has always stayed with me. Your, your joie de vivre has always been there. When I think of Midge, I think of oh my God, bring her to the party because she's going to be the life of the party or, you know, she's going to be so much fun. Um, but yeah, and just the way you relate things that happen, like snow shutting down the entire country. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like living in Georgia, you know, one inch of snow and everybody panics. But um, yeah, let's, 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 let's go there for a minute. I, I would love to talk about that. I... Uh, Cars, Castles, Cows, and Chaos is my very first book. And I am publicly going to thank Deborah Brevoort because she said, you know, you may never be a screenwriter because at Goddard, I was, I was said, I want to be a screenwriter. But you write great essays. Have you thought about memoir or essays? And uh, I just, I just I, want oh, no, I'm going to be a... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm no, going to be... A, I'm sorry, George. No, no, no. Sorry. I just want to cut in and say Deborah Brevoort is a playwright on her own, and she wrote Women of Lockerbie, and she was one of the more popular uh, mentors up at Goddard College. Okay, I'm done. Yeah. Keep going. She was. I mean, she was just wonderful. And I went, no, you know, I'm a playwright. I'm going to learn how to write a, a film script. Well, my divorcing daddy film script, my graduate thesis got done. It never saw the light of day. It's still in a box. But I... Um, when my husband decided to retire, we started living in Italy half of the year. And I, I don't know how many years ago that was. It was, it was a bunch of years ago. And I uh, can't stand being sedentary. I don't want to sit and just read a book all day and stare at the mountains. It's a lovely thing to do. Um, so I started blogging as Nona's Mulberry Tree, nonasmulberrytree.com, just stories of daily life expat in um, in Italy. And then I thought, Oh, these could be these essays if they were redone. These blog posts could be a book. So I I started dividing them out. Hell, look, these are all about cars. There's a bunch about food, you know. So I took all the car ones and I put them in some kind of order, and then I just started rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, and I discovered that there was a publishing house located in Ewing, New Jersey, which is where we spend our USA time. Yeah. So I, I went to their website and without an agent and because nobody told me I couldn't do it, um, course, yeah. I did exactly what it said for submissions. And I sent them the first 
third or fourth of the book. They offered me a contract. George, I Mm. think I peed my pants. I was like (laughs) running around this condominium screaming, oh my God, oh my God. I couldn't believe it. it's not when you get your first your first contract for that sort of thing. Oh my God. And the name of the company was Read Furiously. It still is Read Ooh. Furiously. Great company. They do lots of stuff for the greater good. They uh, you know, literacy programs. They set up free little library boxes in towns. Really, really nice people. Read Furiously. So they said they would do the book. And so I I realized. I don't have a finished book. We can't tell them you don't have a finished book. <laughs> I only sent in the requisite number of pages. Yeah. I have to write the Fakakata book, all of it now. Um, and I did. <laughs> I guess that was that was kind of during COVID. Um, and I, I sent it out. It came out in 2022. I sent it out to good friends to read. And uh, more than one said, wow, this needs cartoons. So I have a dear, dear friend, Janet Cantor Watson, who is a great artist. So uh, I pay, I, I paid her uh, not as much as she's worth for sure. And she did cartoons to go with the stories. And suddenly there it is uh, in 2022, I've got this book. And just uh, it's, it's been a real road trip. It magically appeared. It was like this whole book. It's my name on it. And I've been doing readings, which is the theater person in me. I truly love it. And now out of doing the readings, as a matter of fact, I have two readings coming up in March in uh, upstate New York. The names of the towns, of course, I don't remember. But wait, I can go to the calendar on my phone because maybe there are people listening to this in. Uh, oh, no, this is coming out in April, you said. Uh, probably May, actually. Oh, in May. Well, never mind. I was, okay. I'm was i going to be in some towns in March. But um, out of that, I'm working it into a one-woman show. Uh, and I, which, which I had sort of done, and I did it, and I only performed it once, but I have it on my website. Um, yeah, um, oh, my God. I forgot the name of my one-woman show. It doesn't matter. You can look at my website, midgeguerrero.com. Midgeguerrero.com. Uh, oh. My Mitch's one woman show. But maybe I should go there and I should see if it's still up. Uh, oh, La Dolce Vita, or is it? Okay, there you go. There you go. La Dolce Vita, or is it? And and now that I'm doing uh, these readings and I'm just enjoying them so much, the first bookstore I did was in Newtown, Pennsylvania. And I read tons of stories from my book. It's a collection of short stories. And afterwards, the bookstore owner said, you really can't read so much. I said, well, did I did I do a bad job? I'm a pretty good reader, I thought. She said, you read so many that I heard two women say, you know, she already read probably half of the book. Why should we buy it? Mm. And I went, yeah. oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she said, just tell stories about how these stories came to be and read a sentence, you know, or read the title and just flow with the stories. So that's what I've started doing. And that's really made me think, wow, these are good stories. And I was 
haven't I haven't had anybody record, but when I do them in upstate New York in March, I'm going to have someone record me because I don't know what I say. I make it up as I go along. Sure. Um, Sounds like and, an audio book in the making to me. Well, I think that the book should be an audio book, too. And I think what they explained to me, and I didn't get this, is that publishing is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Because I said, well, why don't we do an ebook and an audiobook right away? No, 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 no. No. First, we do the hard copy. Then we wait a year and then we do the ebook, which is what they did. The ebook just came out before Christmas. Uh, then we wait and then we do an audiobook. Now you have three opportunities to pitch the book. Yeah. Uh, and and not having an agent or anybody to pitch. I think also that it would be a great television series. Anybody out there know anybody who does television <laughs> series? Great. Why uh, not? It's no, it actually sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. There's this 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 crazy woman in her second and third act of life flitting around Italy, getting in trouble and making fun of herself. It would be great fun. And so, yeah, you can you can buy uh, cars, castles, cows, and chaos. Uh, you can order it wherever books are sold. Sold at your we like independent bookstores. We love independent know. bookstores. You know, there is an independent bookstore finder online. So, in case people don't know where to find an independent bookstore, go find independent bookstore uh, online, and that will tell you. And you can avoid it might even be bookstores.org, I think. And it lists everybody in your town. And yeah. you can order a book through your local bookstore just by doing it online. Sure. Yeah. You don't even have to go, but it supports them. It's a fabulous thing. It's a wonderful uh, thing. Mitch so Carrera, thank you so much for oh, bringing it up. No, no worries. No worries. This has been so much fun. I mean, <laughs> wow. It's the time has, has really flown here. And there's, oh my God, there's like so much more stuff we could talk about, but maybe we'll have you back at some point. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for everything and um, just for telling all these wonderful stories and being, being so much fun. And I wish you so much good luck with, with the book and the play and whatever it else you've got in that imagination of yours that needs to come out. George, thank you very much. New projects real fast, something called Born Till Vasa, Born to the Sea. I'm working mm -hmm. with a producer, Joseph Black and his wife, Sandy, on a play about a Swedish warship built between 1626 and 1628. And I know you were interested in this. I'm working with an actor from Italy, Michael Albini, on a one-person show about an Italian prisoner of war guy who was stuck in New Jersey, as well as uh, an Italian-American who was thrown in an internment camp. Wow. Uh, I'm only going to say that because most people don't realize that during World War II, Italians were, Americans were also thrown yeah, in German camps. That's a story we don't so, hear very much. I don't want to end on a, on a, on a horribly <laughs> depressing note. So now I'm going to say, George, this has been fun. I really love it. And I love the fact that you're allowing me to speak my piece on your show. I wouldn't have and it any other way. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. 
If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe, be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>